Happy Easter! Remember, Easter is not just a day, it's a whole season. We should be looking for opportunities to celebrate. Um, we've been having a lot of house dance parties in our house with uh, our little baby Esther. I've made a complete fool of myself dancing in front of her for the sake of her joy. And uh, so dad life begins for me. And <laughs> But I don't know about you. Um, this Easter has been joyous, but it's also left me scratching my head a little bit. We're making progress with COVID, um, but we're not out of the woods yet. And the hope of Easter kind of felt like the hope when I was vaccinated. Okay, great, but what now? <laughs> what does life look like now? Thanks to the preaching of Funmi and John, and just because of where we are in this nation, I was challenged during this Lent season more so than ever I remember during Lent to press into the brokenness of this world because of me, because of sin. And I don't know about you, but as we're entering this season of Easter, I feel both a sense of hope and a sense of confusion and heaviness. Jesus is alive, yes. Death is defeated, yes. Jesus' resurrection is an injection of hope, yes. But this good news has implications. Implications that take some real head and heart work to sort out. And today we continue our series in Romans. We took a pause, like Sarah said, during our Lent season to look at Lamentations, but now we're in Romans. And we find ourselves today in Romans 9. And Romans 9 matches where we are in this Easter season, the implications of hope. Paul is writing to a multi-ethnic church in Rome made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And Romans is made up of four basic sections. In the first section of Romans, Paul is shown both Jews and Gentiles that they're both under sin. In Romans 3.10, he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, but we are justified. We're made right by God's grace as a gift of redemption through Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to know that God has always justified people by faith. So he talks about Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It opens everything up. And so we enter into this second section of Romans, Romans 5 through 8, and we have this new humanity now. Humanity 2.0. We have this as uh, the band Switchfoot, throwback to my high school band days, yeah, um, said a new way to be human. Paul wants to talk to us about a new way to be human in the section, second section of Romans. We've been justified by faith, Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The old way of being human, no peace with God. The new way of being human, peace with God. How? Because God showed his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And then he continues on saying that death came through Adam, but life comes through all people through Jesus Christ. And then we just read the, the section that Sarah read, the sticky love. There's no zip, zero, zilch, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is amazing, a new way to be human. 
right? We didn't receive a spirit of uh, slavery, but we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then we get that sticky verse, right? I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, present things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Humanity 2.0, redeemed humanity, a vaccine for our broken relationship with God. Happy Easter, my goodness. And I kind of feel like ending there, right? Like we're done. Humanity's set, right? Um, Let's just pack up and go home. Um, But no, there's implications. And now Paul is calling us to wrestle with the implications of this good news. Sin is defeated, section one of Romans. We have a new way to be human, section two of Romans. We're at peace with God, adopted as his children by God's spirit. But now there's an unsolved tension that we face in our text today, in Romans nine. We come to the third section of Romans, chapters nine through 11. And Paul has shown us in these first two sections that while both Jew and Gentile stand equally condemned, before God and find life through faith, both in Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish people still have a chosen place in God's salvation for the world. According to Jesus himself, John 4.22, salvation comes from the Jews. What is Israel's role? And by this, I don't mean the nation of Israel, the nation state, modern day, but the people. What is the people of Israel's role, the children of Abraham's role in the salvation of the world? For the next two chapters, Paul will be answering this question. How will God fulfill his promise to Israel? Has salvation come from Israel and now their time as God's chosen people is over? No. Romans 9 through 11 is about how the people of God, God is not through with the descendants of Abraham. So go ahead and turn to Romans 9. It's on page 945. And we're going to walk through the first sections of Romans 9 today. We're going to see three things in Romans 9. We're going to look at the anguish of Paul. We're going to see the promise. And then we're going to see the justice and mercy of God. The anguish of Paul, the promise, and the justice and mercy of God. So the anguish of Paul. In these first few Romans of 9, we see such a tone change from the ends of Romans 8. Why? Why does Paul move from the hope-filled, death-defying, victorious, faithful love of God in chapter 8 to the anguish in chapter 9. Look at the anguish of Paul in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And Paul continues and gets even more extreme. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What could it possibly be? that would cause Paul to wish himself eternally damned in the place of his fellow Jews. In short, God set apart the people of Israel so that everything about their way of life 
was to show the watching Gentile world what God was like. Their adoption in verse 4 by God was meant to prepare the whole world for the ultimate adoption that was going to come through Christ. Israel's reflection of God's glory as a people was meant to prepare the, all the peoples of the world for the ultimate glory for every people, every ethnos through Christ. Israel's covenant with God as his people was meant to prepare the world for his ultimate covenant between Christ and his church. Israel's law was given from God to the kingdom of Israel as a precursor for an ultimate multi-ethnic kingdom of God where the law was on everyone's heart. Israel's worship was to prepare the whole world for ultimate worship of God. Israel's promises of God were to prepare the whole world for the ultimate promise of God to make all things new. From generation to generation, Israel has been being prepared for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. That's why in Romans 3, Paul says a little bit earlier in Romans, then what advantage has the Jew or what value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, but so many have missed the ultimate fulfillment through Christ. Do you understand Paul's anguish? Do you see it? And it wasn't just Paul's anguish. It was Jesus's anguish. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He longs to gather his people, but so many of his own have rejected him. Do you understand Paul's anguish for his own people? Do you understand Jesus's anguish for his own people? And that's the proper response, by the way, anguish. And to look for the opportunity to lay one's life down for those who reject Christ. But briefly, we have to recognize as Gentile converts to the Jewish Messiah, non-Jewish Christians, we've historically responded to the Jews with hate and violence. We've forgotten that Peter, Paul, they were all Jewish, all of the disciples, right? And we've forgotten that our Savior, Messiah, Jesus, was a Jewish man. And we've, we had the time we could walk through the verses that the Gentile followers of Jesus have misapplied to fuel anti-Semitism. But that hatred and violence is not the way of Paul. It's not the way of Christ. If the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus leads us to anything but anguish and self-giving love, we have sinned. We'll see in the coming chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God is not done with his people Israel. He still has a plan. But in this first few verses, we see the anguish of Paul, that even though their whole story was set up for ultimate adoption in the Jewish Messiah, ultimate glory in the Jewish Messiah, ultimate covenant, ultimate law, ultimate worship, ultimate promise in the Jewish Messiah, so many have missed it anguish. Has the word of God failed to take roots in the hearts of the people of Israel? And here we come to the second point, the promise. Paul says, no, it's not as if the word of God has failed. Not all the Jewish people have missed Jesus. Here's Paul himself, a Jewish man, 
writing to a community of Gentiles and Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And 3,000 Jewish people in one day were baptized on Pentecost in Acts 2. And the Lord kept adding to their number those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. Some of the descendants of Abraham are following the Jewish Messiah by faith. How do we understand this? Paul says that these Jews who are accepting their Jewish Messiah are actually part of a starting line of promise that starts with Abraham called the children of promise. If you look at verse 16 through 13, Paul is reminding us that as uh, Tim Mackey, the Bible guy project says, simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. So we see Paul re-articulating this point in Romans 3. Paul argues that while being ethnically and culturally Jewish is a great advantage, much in every way, it never made Israelites a covenant member of God's family. Abraham's offspring Isaac became the forefather of the promise, not Ishmael. And Jacob, not Esau, became the forefather of the promise, right? The word of God has not failed. In fact, things are playing out as they always have, but on a grander scale. It has always been the case that God has chosen a line of promise from the physical descendants of Jacob, who is later named Israel, right? Paul concludes with, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Whoa. <laughs> hated? <laughs> What's going on here? That might make us pause for two reasons, right? Um, first, uh, the word hate is there. And second, because God is choosing one over the other. Let's address the first. And in terms of God saying, Jacob have I loved, Esau has I hated, I think it's better to understand it as rejected. And we could get into the etymology of the Hebrew that's going on here, but we have a Hebrew professor, so I'll just dump that on her. Um, uh, but I think that let's not get sidetracked by that too much. Um, I think the thing that Paul picks up, the argument that Paul picks up is, um, if you have the trouble with the idea of God choosing one for the line of promise of Abraham to continue, if that is troubling to you, Paul beats you to the punch. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And that brings us to the third point, the justice and the mercy of God. The justice and the mercy of God. The justice and mercy of God is actually on display through the line of promise, according to Paul. He quotes Exodus 35, verse 15. I will have mercy on those whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on those whom I will have compassion. Then Paul continues in verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we just have to pause and say, wow, we're going to get to um, the second half of Romans 9 next week through chapter 11, where we see the tension of free will and God's election. Bishop is going to take care of that. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but we need to pause and rest of the beauty of this tr truth, right? That it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy right? God's salvation zaps you and zaps me 
of any sense of pride or self-justification. It depends on God's mercy. It's not because you're smart. It depends on God's mercy. It's not because you're from a great family. It depends on God's mercy. It's not because you're a Jew or a non-Jew. It depends on God's mercy. It's not because of your self-determination or work ethic. There's not a room, there's not room for a hint of arrogance as a Christian. It depends on God's mercy. Depends on the paper not sticking together. Life begins and ends with the mercy of God. But we still have a couple more verses to get to here. And Paul's argument might seem to sound even more prickly, right? Paul points out that God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart so that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's actually exactly what happened. Shocker, uh, right? <laughs> we, we see that because Pharaoh's heart was hardened to the idea of God's will, Pharaoh, Pharaoh wouldn't let people go. All sorts of miracles and signs were done in Egypt that gave God glory. Frogs, flies, uh, darkness, plagues, parting of the Red Sea, right? All these events went ahead of Israel as they went into the land that God had promised them. And remember the Gentile Rahab, um, who later actually became a part of Jesus' line. Very cool. But she lived in Jericho. She lived in the wall. And the Israelite spies go, and they, they stay with Rahab. And she says what? I know that God has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came into Egypt, right? Pharaoh's hardened heart has led to God's glory, right? Don't you see that now because of Pharaoh's hardened heart, God's glory was being proclaimed throughout the land? And let's take it a step further, actually. Um, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart comes the Passover meal, right? And the Passover meal in Egypt foreshadows the ultimate Passover meal, that Jesus had with his disciples. Jesus is the true and ultimate Passover lamb whose blood covers us and causes death to pass us by. And Paul wants us to marvel at the mercy and compassion of God who orchestrates history, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to bring glory to his name. Now, before we bring this home and really think about how this applies to us, I want us um, to set us up for next week when we look at the second half of Romans 9. If you're still thinking about Jacob being chosen and not Esau and Pharaoh's heart being hardened and wondering if that's fair, you should continue to wonder that. And actually, verse 19, we'll see, beats you to the punch. Why does God, in verse 19, this is the New Living Translation, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do, Right? And I encourage you to think about this more deeply, the tension between God choosing people for salvation or our choice of free will. We see that tension throughout scripture. Go listen to a John Piper sermon and then go listen to William Lane Craig duke it out over predestination versus free will. It's a, it's a worthwhile topic for us to engage with our minds and our hearts as Christians, right? And we'll see that through the next 
a couple weeks as we walk through this chapter. But we'd have to talk about really long portions of scripture from all over the Bible, right? And I was only assigned to this passage, which I'm kind of grateful for. Um, so um, I want to summarize what we've seen so far in, in the, the kind of uh, thrust of Paul argument, Paul's uh, letter here. We've seen Paul's anguish for his fellow Israelites. Even though they carry in their ethnicity and culture the adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, many have rejected the Messiah who is Jesus of Nazareth. But some have not rejected him. And in fact, um, that's Paul's second point, that there's always been a faithful children of promise running from Abraham down to himself. The promise started with Abraham, continued through Isaac and Ishmael, not Jacob and Esau. Or Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Ishmael. And it runs down. And we're stopping kind of midpoint on Paul's argument, right? Um, about the mercy of God. So in this both like, <laughs> this is beautiful and dense stuff, right? God orchestrating history through hardened hearts and <laughs> picking people, right? Um, actually, if we look at Peter and, and 2 Peter, um, I love this. 2 Peter 3.15, a lot of people talk about this verse, but it's actually, I think, in reference to what we just read, right? 2 Peter 3.15, Peter actually refers to Paul's teaching on salvation and kind of like the direction of the world. And he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave them. God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> so Peter, man, if Peter's scratching his head on the first pass, I think we're all right to be like, huh, what's going on here, right? And we'll pick that up next week. Thanks, Bishop. Um, but um, today, as we're beginning this third section of Romans, um, Paul is making the case that in the midst of anguish, God is orchestrating history for his glory. In the midst of anguish, God is orchestrating history for his glory, not for your personal comfort, not for your American dream. He's orchestrating history for his glory. So what or who in your life is tempting you to doubt God's redemptive orchestration? What problem or obstacle, difficulty or conundrum or hard-hearted person is tempting you to doubt God's redemptive orchestration? I want to tell a story. I'm not going to tell it in too much detail, but I want to tell you a story um, from growing up in my family of God orchestrating history, personally, kind of for us, for the sake of his glory in the midst of some anguish for us. Um, so throughout my middle and high school year, which now actually, as I was referencing the Switchfoot song, is kind of a long time ago. Um, <laughs> my dad uh, served under a hard-hearted overseer in the church who had um, kind of joined with others, some overseers to abandon biblical teaching. 
And there's actually been, in some ways, some reconciliation now between my father and this man. There's not hard feelings. But throughout my middle and high school years, there was a lot of anguish for our whole family, wondering, God, what are you doing? And all of this kind of culminated around the senior year of high school for me. I had applied to like my dream school up north um, for college, and it looked like I was going to get in. And my dad's early pension was, I think, about three months away from kicking in. And that was going to pay for me to go to college. Um, but then things really took a turn for the worse between my dad and this kind of hard-hearted man. And my dad had to make a choice, which is he could keep his pension by keeping his head down and doing what he knew not to be right at the time. Or he could take a stand when he needed to take a stand. And the decision actually came down to the day that I got my acceptance letter from my dream school, right? And my dad had to stand up and leave that uh, denomination, even though it meant the loss of his early pension, which would pay for my dream school. And I remember walking, I remember walking from the mailbox with my acceptance letter, with my dad, knowing that I wouldn't be going. <sighs> OK, the story gets good, so I need to take a drink of water, because that's the sad part. OK. Um, that is how. Uh, um, I'm going to try to get through it without it. Um, uh, that's how I ended up at Florida State. That's how I ended up at Florida State. <laughs> I found myself in a Bible study with a very um, talkative man named Taylor Bodo. He was my university staff worker at the time at Florida State. He was like eight, uh, I think like six years younger than I am now, which completely freaks me out. Um, Taylor discipled me all through college, right? I introduced him to my dad. Um, Taylor, uh, he became really close with my dad. Um, Taylor went off to seminary. I came on in a varsity staff. Um, Taylor and John were next door neighbors or Taylor was next door neighbors to Sarah and John at seminary, right? They felt called to plant a church in Tallahassee together, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and then they came here and planted this church, right? And I've had the chance to see, because I stayed here on a varsity staff, God bring so many people to the faith, like Sarah Ma Taylor or uh, Kelsey Tessalona, right? And then we've seen... God do incredible things through this church, right? It's glorious. God orchestrating history through a hard-hearted person, right? And you could say that it was because of a hard-hearted man who acted in a way that kept a goofy senior out of, uh, from high school from going to his dream college that we're here today. And of course, this isn't to my credit. It's not to my dad's credit. It's not to Taylor John's credit. It's to the orchestrator's credit, right? It's about God. It's about his glory. 
So. Who or what in your life is tempting you to doubt God's redemptive orchestration? The call is for us to fight for a heart posture that believes that God is not asleep. that believes he's weaving our personal stories and our family stories into a larger redemptive narrative for his glory.